We are very privileged today to have as our speaker Michael uh, Admarin from New Orleans. He is an attorney at the Capital Appeals Project in New Orleans. While a student at Harvard Law School, he focused on capital defense at various stages of litigation through internships at the law office of Robert McDuff in Jackson, Mississippi, and the Southern Center for Human Rights in Atlanta, Georgia. At the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama, he worked primarily on clemency proceedings as part of an externship through Harvard's Punish uh, Capital Punishment Clinic. Mr. Admarin, Admarin also participated in the Har uh, Harvard Criminal Justice Institute and Employment Civil Rights Clinic and was honored with the Gary Bellow Public Service Award for his commitment to public service. He is a very accomplished litigator and has worked on death penalty cases in Alabama, Georgia, and Louisiana, and currently has a number of clients on Louisiana's death row. He is also actively engaged in abolition work as a member of the board for the Louisiana Co Coalition for Alternatives to the Death Penalty. Um, he also wanted me to inform you, I got this on my own, but he wanted me to inform you that he, although he is a Yankee, he, now having moved to New Orleans and been there since 2010, he has seen the errors of his ways <laughs> and will remain with us. Thank you. Uh, the bio I gave Lori was much shorter than the one she just announced. Uh, I was hoping to keep most of that under wraps except for the Yankee part. Um, but uh, good morning, everyone, and thank you, Lori, and everybody else for having me here this morning. Uh, it's quite an honor to be here uh, on Sunday morning with you. And as Lori eventually said, I work in New Orleans at an office appointed to represent all of the folks on Louisiana's death row in their appeals, which means, among other things, that I spend quite a bit of time here in Shreveport. And over the course of the next 15 minutes or so, I'm going to try to weave in a few things. Some personal history, the story of my evolution into this work, what it's like to represent the so-called worst of the worst, uh, but mostly I want to talk about the individuals I feel privileged to know and represent. First, however, I need to issue a disclaimer. I was raised Catholic, and although that's not the disclaimer, I spent my formative years in Catholic school. And I'd like to think that I've held on to the morals and virtues they sought to instill in me, but I've long since turned my back on the more strict aspects of that church's teachings. And since doing so, however, I've had an uneasy relationship with faith, and even with those who possess it. That discomfort, of course, posed very few difficulties up north, that godless, hedonistic collection of states known as New England. Uh, but since moving to Louisiana a few years ago, uh, it has become apparent that I need to re-examine my position on the subject. It's an ongoing, difficult process, and I confess to some trepidation as I stand before you today, which seems strange in light of how welcoming everyone has been. But what do I talk about? What message do I try to convey? How do I talk about the death penalty, that stain on our society, uh, at a Sunday service? Something I cannot imagine my pastors ever doing when I was a child. In search for answers, I did what we kids do, and I went to this congregation's website to get a sense of the principles animating your faith. 
And although I found myself in agreement with a lot of them, one in particular stood out to me. The inherent worth and dignity of every person. That's a really powerful sentiment, and one that my family and my temporary faith instilled in me when I was a child. Yet I had never had that principle tested until my first summer of law school, which coincided with my first meaningful exposure to the criminal justice system as it operates down here in the South, and in particular, to the death penalty. Uh, I had grown up in Connecticut, happily cloistered from the legacies of slavery, racism, and other pernicious discrimination. Uh, Of course, I'd read about the Civil Rights Movement, the progress made, the price paid, but before that summer, I was of the belief widely held up north that conditions have changed, that the problems of the past were not necessarily problems of the present, even if there was work yet to be done. Nothing prepared me for that first summer, though, which I spent in Jackson, Mississippi, working for an attorney with a pretty varied civil rights and criminal defense practice. I worked on a variety of cases, but my first and most prevalent was a capital case involving a client who I will call Sammy. As he was first described to me, Sammy had been charged with a brutal home invasion, robbery, and murder of an elderly woman in Shelby, Mississippi, a place I'll describe momentarily. Sammy had turned 18 just three months before the crime occurred. And although two other co-defendants were involved in the commission of that crime, Sammy alone faced the death penalty for his role. If the media surrounding the case were to be believed, Sammy had orchestrated this crime with startling precision, knowing exactly when the victim would be home and where the most valuable jewelry was stored. The media described him in almost animalistic terms. He was a monster, a beast, a predator lurking in the shadows for his unsuspecting prey. In light of this description, I was a bit surprised to learn of my attorney's preliminary argument that Sammy was intellectually disabled and thus ineligible for execution under the U.S. Supreme Court's decision barring the execution of so-called mentally retarded individuals. My boss believed that Sammy could not possibly have been the mastermind of this crime, that his co-defendants were far more culpable and simply dragged Sammy along for the ride, knowing that he was a follower and would do whoever, or whatever he was told. My boss told me that we had to prove his intellectual disabilities by creating a life history of his impairments, which in turn would show that his adaptive deficits were severe enough to spare his life. Mike, uh, to do this, he said, he gave me a list of about 14 names. Mike, he told me, we think these are the names of his siblings, his parents, neighbors, teachers, uh, but we're not sure. Uh, We also think that this is where they live, but uh, we're not sure. Don't come back until you found them. This was my first week in Jackson, Mississippi, and I had just figured out how to get from my apartment to the office, and now he's telling me to explore the reaches of the Mississippi Delta. Uh, I don't think Google has found it yet. Um, And I'm supposed to find people I don't know to talk about a capital murder. One weekend, I'm questioning my life decisions, wondering why I'm not at a firm. But wanting to be a good intern, I hopped in the car with my co-clerk and drove to Shelby, Mississippi. I had read about poverty before. I had seen pictures of the antebellum South. I had learned about the struggles of the mid-20th century. But nothing prepared me for what I saw when we crossed the line into Shelby. 
a town of fewer than 3,000 people, it's an enclave of perhaps 20 intersecting roads along Highway 61 in the northwest corner of the state. I walked through the local school and had to watch my step for shards of glass and the weeds creeping up through the floor. The windows of the nearby hospital, still functional, were shattered, ivy climbing ever higher along the walls, and not in the way that my alma mater has it. Bugs lined the walls of the single pharmacy and restaurant. And as with everything else that summer, I compared this to my life back home. My small town, Reading, Connecticut, is next to, by way of reference, Newtown, Connecticut, recently made, unfortunately famous. Newtown's a small town, mine is a third of the size. It's 8,000 middle-class people in Fairfield County who've never wanted for anything. And so with that as my backdrop, I'm driving through Shelby, Mississippi, thinking it's probably a pretty difficult place to grow up. But it's not an excuse for murder. Then we started to interview the folks to whom I had been assigned to interview. I started to learn about Sammy. His teachers told me that he might be able to add two digits, but certainly couldn't do three, and don't even try to get him to subtract. His neighbors told me that if you asked him to go to the store down the road and get a gallon of milk and a carton of eggs, he'd come back with a quart of orange juice and a box of Eggo waffles. His siblings had to bathe him until he was in high school. And not only did they have to lay out his clothes for him on his bed so he would know what to wear, they had to take a black Sharpie and line the back of it so that he knew which way to put the shirt on. This was the mastermind behind this killing. But as I started to meet the siblings, the teachers, and the neighbors, I started to wonder, where are the parents? His dad, I learned, had long since left him, and probably for the best, because while he was around, he was abusive, and he was a drug lord. His mother, however, was still around, though it was difficult to find her until we learned of her code name, Snow. When someone told us to go along this street, it's the second tree on the right, and that's where she'll be, dealing drugs. And sure enough, there was Snow. And not only had she been doing drugs throughout the entire time of her pregnancy with Sammy, as soon as he was born, she would prostitute him out to get more drugs. As I learned and and, and met Sammy's mother, I thought back to my own parents and how different it was. When I was really young, I wanted to be a baseball star. And so they got me a picture of my t-ball picture and put it on a Wheaties box and said, Mike, this will be you. Then I actually wasn't very good at baseball, so I decided to turn my attention to basketball. And I said, I want to be in the NBA. And so they drew up a contract there. I signed with the Celtics and made Michael Jordan jealous. Uh, I, however, was not Michael Jordan. And I eventually realized that singing was my strong suit. And so they paid for me to go to all-state concerts, uh, to tours around the world. Um, These are my parents. And I contrast that with the parents Sammy had, one of whom wasn't there and was probably the better of the two. And then finally I met Sammy. At the time he was 21 years old, but he was really 12 in the body of a 21-year-old. He was a six-foot-two-inch teddy bear. He wanted to talk about basketball, about life on the outside. He had just learned to type, something he had never gotten the opportunity to do until he was in jail. This was my summer, and despite everything I had read before getting down there, uh, despite how smart I thought I was, I realized how little I knew, how little conditions have actually changed. 
and my whole worldview changed. These monsters you read about in the media who commit these horrible, senseless crimes are people. They have skills to offer. And the the common saying in this line of work is that everybody is more than the worst thing they've ever done. I mean, can you imagine being labeled as the worst thing you've ever done? I used to lie in my confessions to my priest. I think that should be a capital crime. (laughs) And imagine if I was introduced to you not as uh, this attorney, but as Michael Admiran the liar, uh, or Michael Admiran the sister hitter. Uh, I have five sisters, and I'm a middle child, so I think I have an excuse on that one. Um, But there is this belief that everybody is more, and everybody can be more, uh, that after that summer committed me to this line of work. This idea that, that as my colleague said last night, that this hopeless and unjust idea that certain people are just beyond redemption is something I just can't live with. That's just not fair. And so I've sought about to, de- to defend those on Louisiana's death row in an effort to make people realize that you know, everybody is more than the worst thing they have ever done. And that if they're going to try to kill them, it can't be in my name. And so now the question I get the most is, how do you defend those people? And my answer is always the same. The first is to recognize that they're people. They're not monsters. They're humans. They're broken. They've failed. Um, they had systems that failed them and no way, to, no recourse. And although ultimately they pulled the trigger, they wielded the knife. They're more than that. They're more than that 30 seconds. You know, and I work with them just to share in their humanity, which so often is something that they've never had. They were never on a Wheaties box, if they've even seen one. Uh, they never had a contract with the Boston Celtics. Um, and, and, we, and I try to help them realize their potential as humans. 75% of my job is being a social worker. And, and help them acquire a sense of understanding how they came to this position and where they can go from here, despite the circumstances of their confinement. I just refuse to believe that certain people are beyond redemption. It simply cannot be true. And so I ask you to come, uh, as Laurie said this morning, to join me in this circle of love and justice. This congregation, among all others, knows the injustice that happens in Shreveport, Louisiana. You were instrumental in taking down the the Confederate flag outside the Caddo Parish Courthouse. Um, And as we, we read today, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And until we abolish the death penalty, we'll never realize and we'll never live up to that principle we hold so dear, that everyone has inherent worth, inherent dignity, and everyone has a life worth saving. Thank you. As an attorney myself, I can tell you that the people that do death penalty work are the heroes of the of, of law. They really are. What they go through day in and day out, nobody should have to go through. And so I want to applaud them for doing death penalty work at all.